0: I think uh, most of you received a postcard in the mail this week about Beyond, and you've uh, heard about it uh, off and on. You're going to be reading more about it in the coming weeks. The Beyond campaign is the third leg in our three-legged stool here, our vision for ministry growing deeper in our knowledge and love of God, connecting with others, loving each other, and then serving the world with the gospel. So next month throughout that month, we're challenging the congregation together to go beyond. In your own world, your own uh, sphere of influence, we're going to all do that together. It's going to be a wonderful time. We've set goals and objectives that we think only can be reached if God enables us to do it. So whether it's uh, tons of food or whether it's a myriad of diapers, or whether it's uh, 400 and some people serving Christ together in a variety of ministries around the city. That's what we're uh, moving toward, that's what we're going for, and we believe God's called us to do it. And so uh, this month, as we lead up to the Beyond campaign, last week we talked about the way in which God interrupts our lives, changes our lives, gives us a clear understanding that every moment of our lives up until this moment is a preparation for what he wants to do. And then today, um, we're going to seek to establish a divine uh, foundation for engaging in ministry. So the foundation for engagement in these activities beyond. And then next week, we're going to look at loving our neighbors. And then in two weeks, we have Tom... uh, Hughes, coming from California, grew up in the church, uh, minister, co-pastors, a very large church in Los Angeles, California, a church that's doing all kinds of things for Christ all around the world. He's going to come and share his heart with us. So this morning, we're uh, going to look at um, some early words of Luke, the gospel writer, beginning in Luke chapter 1, and the prophecy of Zechariah. Now, you may remember Zechariah was... Uh, Because of his doubt of Gabriel's message that his wife would conceive and bear a son, uh, God caused him to be a mute for nine months. And when that baby was born, he names that child and then he begins a prophecy. And his father, that's John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child, John the Baptist, grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And then in chapter 2, beginning in verse 39, And when Mary and Joseph had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Last summer, one of my favorite authors died, Calvin Miller. Calvin Miller was a longtime pastor, author, seminary professor. In fact, he taught at two seminaries when he died one in Texas and one in Alabama. And when he died, the dean of the Beeson Divinity School of Samford University said this about Calvin Miller Calvin's love for Jesus and his church was palpable. He will be greatly missed. Indeed, he will be. Calvin Miller's ministry spanned generations and continents. He authored 40 books, but perhaps my favorite book he wrote in 1997, it was entitled An Owner's Guide for the Unfinished Soul. And in it, he tells a story that perfectly illustrates why I'm in ministry. But more importantly, it illustrates perfectly the foundation for engagement by any Christian in any kind of service beyond yourself. It's a story about a Catholic priest and a woman who came to him in the confessional booth, but don't be put off by that because I would argue that this describes most Protestants too. He tells this story, one day on his way to the confessional, to hear morning confessions, a priest hopped the fence of an apple orchard and picked a piece of fruit, even though the sign said, keep out, no pilfering. He did it every day, and as he went to the confessional, he would eat that apple, and right before he came to the confessional, he'd throw the core on his side of the curtain. A young girl named Cora came that day, and she too, on the way to confession, stole an apple from the same orchard. She ate the apple on the way to confession, and then she, threw her, used core behind her side of the curtain. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned, she said. My child, how long has it been since your last confession? 24 hours, Father. Is your sin the same as usual? Yes, Father, I'm still stealing apples. Te absolvo, he said. Go and try to stay away from those apples. I'll try, Father, but they're so good, and I'm so weak. And every day that ritual was continued. Every 24 hours, the priest would steal an apple. And Korah would steal an apple, and they'd throw their cores on the opposite side of the curtain, and she would confess her sin. And finally, one day, she said, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. It was an ordinary confession, an ordinary day. But the priest said, today, Korah, I will not forgive you. For we know that you will do it again You will never change. You were a wretched girl. Henceforth, I will not ever forgive you. Please, Father, she said. I'm so very sorry. No, the priest said, before the cider dries on your chin, you'll steal an apple again. I counted 365 rotten cores on your side of the curtain. You are too wicked. You are too apple ridden to ever receive my forgiveness. The girl's heart was broken. She walked away from the confessional. For weeks, her guilt grew, and finally, she quit going to confession. Autumn came, the winter approached. The fields around the church grew brown. The swans left the pond. The early daylight was heavy with frost. The apples in the orchard orchard were few, and most of them were high up in the trees. The wretched girl, still unable to leave her addiction, shimmied high up on the frosty boughs when suddenly she noticed a movement in one of the trees not far from her. She saw a black Cossack. She said, Father, what are you doing here? He said, My daughter, I'm praying. It's closer to heaven. Oh, Father, I wish I could say I'd come to pray. Instead, I've come to steal another apple. Wretch, he said, and as soon as he said it, the branch on which he was standing broke and he plummeted to the ground. Cora raced down the tree, and she came to his her father, who was on his back. He said, "Daughter, I'm dying. You must give me last rites." My father, I can't give you last rites. I'm too impure. I'm filled with vile, unforgiven apple thievery. I'm too wicked to grant absolution. May God have mercy on you, father. And with that, the priest died. And he went to Hades to burn in flaming apple cider for a thousand years. But Korah never knew it. A few weeks later, a new priest came to that parish. Parish. And Korah went back to confession. She said, Father, bless me, for I have sinned. I've stolen an apple this morning on the way to confession. The priest said, you too? Tomorrow, let's both go steal three and make a pie. Who knows? Maybe our Father in heaven will provide the nutmeg. After Cora and the priest had eaten many pies together, They found that they were actually beginning to help each other with support. They prayed for each other. And finally, both of them were able to quit stealing apples. At least they didn't steal many apples after that. Still, some sins are quite hard to break. Unconfirmed apple thieves must help each other pass by the best orchards. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that story illustrates the difference between religion and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That story illustrates the difference between trying to do it yourself and following the only godly foundation that a Christian can have to go beyond himself or herself and meet the needs of others. So let's look at this foundation. First of all, notice the wilderness. Look at verse 80. And the child, that's John, became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his first or his public appearance to Israel. Now, if you're ever on Jeopardy and Alex Trebek says Bible for 400, the first man, according to Luke, who walk blamelessly in all of the commands and statutes, you say, who is Zechariah? And you'll win $400. There are 32 Zacharias in the Bible, and this is the last one. His name literally means God has remembered. There are 32 of them. But this is the last one. And it's crucial to understand the meaning of his name. God is remembered when you come to Luke chapter 1. For by the time you come to Luke chapter 1, it's been 400 years since God has visited his people. It's been 400 years of abject silence. And then Luke tells us that one day, in the temple, the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah the priest, an old priest, who's married to an old woman named Elizabeth. And Gabriel says, you will be the father of a son. Now, the priests of Israel were divided into 24 different orders. And every order had two weeks in Jerusalem to do the service of the temple. And interestingly, during those two weeks, one priest out of the whole order was given permission and given the responsibility to go in and burn incense in the holy place right by the curtain that separated God's presence from his people. And Zechariah gets that privilege. It's an incredible honor. And Luke says as he's fulfilling his duties, the angel Gabriel shows up And tells him that Elizabeth will bear a son and his name will not be Zachariah, which means God is remembered. But his name will be John, which means God is gracious. Now that's a major shift. You look at all the Zacharias in the Old Testament. And you see evidence in their story of God remembering his commands, remembering his people... Remembering to be merciful to them. But, ladies and gentlemen, while the Hebrews were well acquainted with the mercy of God, until the new covenant, they didn't know a whole lot about the grace of God. In fact, Zechariah is so aghast at the news that his elderly wife will bear a son whose name will be John, God is gracious, that God prevents him from speaking for nine months. And after she delivers that boy, and the people surround Zechariah, and they say, what will this child's name be? Zechariah says, his name will be God is gracious. His name will be John. And then Luke says, this old man who hasn't said a word for nine months, begins to break forth in a prophetic song. And according to every scholar worth his or her salt, this is the last prophecy of the Old Covenant and the first prophecy of the New Covenant all tied up in one. And when you examine it, You find that all all about the differences between religion and the gospel. You see, prior to this prophecy, everything about God was veiled in darkness. God was separated from his people. God told his people to be separated from others. I mean, look at John the Baptist. Luke says he grew and became strong in spirit, where? In the wilderness. Now, it's thought that both of his parents, being old when he was born, died. And he went out into the wilderness to be raised by a sect in Judaism by the name of the Essenes. That wasn't uncommon, especially for the son of a priest. He left all of the population centers, went out into the wilderness, and he gathered himself to these people called the Essenes, and he learned from them some of the most important lessons of his life. Perhaps the most important was the significance of silence and solitude. They took solitude seriously. Now, what a perfect description of Israel's condition prior to Christ. Under the Old Covenant, it was all about distance. We see it at Sinai. We see it at the tabernacle. We see it in the temple. God is a distant God from His people. Even when He condescends to dwell in the heart of His people, in the midst of His people, there's still a veil. There's still processes they must follow. And yet notice John's description of Jesus. I'm sorry, Luke's description of Jesus. He returned to Galilee with his parents to live in the town of Nazareth where he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God. And the word there in Greek is the same word, kera, which means grace. He grew in the grace of God. John the Apostle says, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. And ladies and gentlemen, the first reason why any Christian from a biblical perspective should care one whit about anyone else is because they themselves have been cared for by the grace of God. God doesn't save you. To put you on the shelf. To lock you away so that you can be concerned only with your own self-interest. No, God's given you grace that you might spread His grace around to others. And second, notice not only the wilderness, notice the works. Look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. Now, mercy presupposes works. To receive mercy means you're not getting the punishment that is due to you for your works that violate God's law. And you see that all through the Old Testament. God promises that if a person keeps his law, God will be pleased with them and they will be acceptable to him. God says, in effect, here's everything I want you to do. Just follow that and you'll be cool. The problem is, you can't follow that. The problem is, within just a matter of moments, when you read the commandments, you discover that you're in deep weeds because no one can keep that law. It's not good news. The law isn't good news. It's horrible news. It's news that you are a sinner and you see it from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old Testament. In the face of your sin, God offers you mercy. In the face of their sin, God offered them mercy. He said, okay, when you sin, I will accept the life of an animal for your own life. Through the death of a sacrifice, I will not give you what you deserve now that's the foundation of the old covenant when you sin you sacrifice an animal as a substitute and your ledger is cleared you know what the gospel says god gets rid of the ledger the gospel says that god doesn't just withhold the judgment that is due to us he executes it against himself He doesn't just refrain from giving us what we deserve. The God of the universe becomes a man. He lays down his life for us once and for all. The offended party takes the offense on himself. Now, why would anyone ever abandon his isolation in the world? Why would anyone? Ever abandon his own self-interest and, the, and his own desires? There's only one answer to that. Why should I care at all about anybody but me? Because God cared for me when I hated him. It's through all of his works that we're freed from our own works. Do you see that? You're free. You're free from all of the guilt. You're free from all of the penalty. You are now free to not think just of yourself. You're now free to think of the needs of others. Then third and finally, notice not only the wilderness and the works. Notice the witness. Look at verses 76 through 78. And you, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now think of that. All through the Bible... Sin is declared to be darkness. Even in God's presence, in the temple, if it weren't for the lamps, there would be utter darkness. In the Old Covenant, the presence of God is shrouded in darkness. But notice what Zechariah says. He uses the same word for the Messiah that Malachi uses in chapter 4, where he calls the Messiah the Son of Righteousness. He uses the same word Peter uses in 2 Peter chapter 1, when he describes Jesus as the bright and morning star. He uses the same word Jesus uses in Revelation 22, when he says of himself, I am the bright and morning star. You know the good news of the gospel? The darkness has been dispelled. A new day has dawned. And according to Jesus, we now have the unmitigated privilege of shining His light of grace into the deepest darkness we find anywhere. Think of it. From the beginning of time, men and women have sought to meet their basic need for love and worth. They wanted to know love. We still do. Every person you encounter is in a quest to be loved and to show love. Not only that, they have a great desire, we all do, for worth. Do I really matter? And all through time, men and women have sought to meet those two basic needs, to love and be loved and have a sense of worth by what they did. By their own performance or by the approval of others. And religion, you know what religion says? Do what's right and you will be loved. And you will be approved by God. And you will be approved by others. Just do the right thing and you'll find that you're worth something. But the gospel says that's a fool's game. No one is good enough to do the right thing all the time. No one is good enough to desire to do the right thing all the time. You see, that was Korah's problem. That was the priest's problem. There's only one thing that can free you from your addiction to forbidden fruit, and that is the love of Jesus Christ. There's only one thing that can pierce your darkness, and that is the love of Jesus Christ. There's only one thing that can meet your deepest, most basic need for love, and worth, and that is His grace. So, why would anybody go beyond themselves to meet the needs of others? Why does anyone ever say, You know, something, you are important to me, and they mean it? Why would anybody mean that? There's only one reason to go beyond yourself, and that's because you've come to know that the grace of God is what you need. And what's they, it's what they need. People don't need more law. People need grace. People need to know that Jesus paid it all. That Jesus loved us enough. That Jesus said, you're worth something because you belong to me. And whether it's providing food, or whether it's providing diapers, or whether it's providing money, or whether it's providing service to meet some tangible need, we understand that the greatest need on the face of the planet in the lives of every man, woman, and child is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So may we go beyond, beyond ourselves, beyond our need with the incredible supply of His grace that He's given to every one of us. And eat some pie along the way. Think about that. Amen.